And I'll just tell you, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it says, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb, and Horeb would be another name for Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barina. And that's kind of a, a boundary for the promised land. So they're excited about this. It's only an 11-day trip. Do you want to know how long it took him to get to the promised land? <laughs> 39 more days. Or years. <laughs> 39 more years, yeah. And... Uh, so that's 11 days of, of worth of real estate in 39 years. Now, I'm totally serious about this because I know sometimes when I start my sermons, I say something funny. I'm totally serious about this. The lesson is, you know what, maybe we just turn down the volume a bit and it wouldn't be as hot. Uh, okay. And then uh, uh, here's the lesson. God is not in a hurry. And this is a difficult lesson for us because... Our primary concern is speed. That's how we live as a society. Now, anytime a family goes on vacation and they have little kids in the back seat, the little kids will always ask one question. They ask it often. They ask it annoyingly sometimes. They ask it sometimes in a chant and a song. And the longer the trip, the sooner the question comes out. And you know what the question is. Are we there yet? You know. And parents look forward to the day when kids will mature and they'll become patient and they won't have these silly fighting over, you know, spaces. Did you have that when you were a kid like I did? We had four kids in our family and we drew a line and you crossed my space, you know. And we wouldn't have the arguments about what radio station we should get played and we wouldn't have the whining about where and when we're going to stop for lunch. And not to be gross here, but in our family, we had a rule that if you let any gas you were going to have to get on a Greyhound bus to make the rest of the trip. And that was my dad's threat to us. So I always had this image that I'd be on a Greyhound bus going someplace. But most of us, as we grow up, we don't get any different. God, get me this job. God, get me into this house. God, get me into this relationship. God, get me into this financial situation. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And that's what God knew, and He still knows about human beings. God knew that, that where His people were going is not nearly as important as the kind of people they were becoming as they were going there. You know, they had that, that land of milk and honey that wasn't nearly as important as a heart that was flowing with love and justice and courage and faith. And having a portfolio uh, that flows with dollars or a job that flows with power, it doesn't really matter nearly as much as having a character that flows from the fruit of the Spirit. And so God kept His people in the wilderness because He had certain lessons that they needed to learn. And I don't know about you, but it's usually in the wilderness experiences of my life that I learned the greatest lessons about who God is and who I am. So throughout the history of the Old Testament, many of God's most important people, Moses and David and Elijah, they spent a lot of time in the wilderness. Where does Jesus go when he first, before he starts his public ministry? Into the wilderness. And so this morning, what I think we'll do is we're going to go on a journey with them. And we're going to learn some of the lessons that they learned from the wilderness. So, you've already got your Bibles turned to Exodus chapter 15. Let's start at verse 22, because we're going to wilderness school here. And this is where God is going to form His people. By the way, the Israelites were, were taking a couple steps back to where we were last week. I want to give you a running head start into to where we're going. The Israelites have been delivered from Pharaoh and his army. God's given them this miraculous redemption. And I want you to notice how...
how long it takes after they've come through the Red Sea. Verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. And that's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Now, now, time out here. Here's what I think. I think that since God has just delivered them from Egypt, their faith has got to be at an all-time high. Did you see that? All of Pharaoh's armies, you know, completely compassionate. God got us through, man. We're trusting. This is three days later. God's at the wheel, and the kids are whining in the back seat. So God miraculously provides for them. He tells Moses to throw a piece of wood in the water, and it purifies the water. By the way, I believe they were only less than a mile from Elam, where they had the springs of Elam and all the trees there and stuff like that, if they, had, if they just had held out. But God comes through in this particular situation. And so now they have freedom. They have miraculous guidance. They have direction. They've been supernaturally provided water to drink. Now they're surely going to have faith and be... Be content. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam, and they came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we... We sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted. And you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, just want you to notice verse 3 again. He says, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. These people are bringing complaint to a new art form. You know, we're not asking much. They said just death. Because there in Egypt we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the foods we wanted. Now, does anybody remember what they were when they were in Egypt? Slaves. Yeah. They did not sit around eating fondue every day when they were in Egypt. But I'll tell you what happens. This is true for all of us as human beings. Whenever there's discontent that comes in our life, it plays with our minds and it distorts our perspective. And what we tend to do is we exaggerate how bad our condition is and we look with rose-colored glasses at how things used to be and how things are for somebody else and we get a, a, a perverted perspective on our own situation. And that's just human nature. Start verse 6. We'll pick up a key word here that we're going to see that's both in Exodus and Numbers. And I want you to see if you can pick out this this key word. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against Him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when He gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because He has heard your grumbling against Him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Verse 10, While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Anybody pick up what the key word is? <laughs> grumbling over and over. Several times it says, the Lord has heard their grumbling. And God hears, but He also provides. He just keeps providing for them. Look at verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost, first frosted flakes, on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each one you have in your tent. And by the, by the way, an omer was about three pounds. Now this, this name, manna, I think becomes kind of an inside joke for the Israelites. Because in Hebrew, manna simply means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. I mean, could you imagine? What do you want for breakfast? I'll have a bowl of what is it? <laughs> Nothing, honey. Uh, now, what is it that God is trying to teach these people? You know, Moses makes this real explicit in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Don't, don't need to turn there right now. But in verse 3 and 4, he's looking back at this episode decades later, and here's what he said. God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. And it wasn't just the hunger that God provided for, because in verse 4 it says, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell. In other words, you had shoes and sandals you were taken care of during those 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, think of the constant marching and the blazing sun and the sandstorms and everything. And, and the story was, their clothes never wore out. He says, you didn't have Lord and Taylor, but the Lord was your tailor. And He took care of you for all that. So God was saying to the people, I'll take care of you. I'm enough. Trust me. Now, there's an important rule about manna gathering that we have to look at, and it's in verse 17. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots, and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. I guess some people, you know, they just thought, well, what if God doesn't provide tomorrow, so I'll hide some in my tent, put it in my pillowcase, whatever, and the next morning it turned to worms. Now, here's the manna rule, or the principle of manna. One day at a time. God will provide for you one day at a time. Trust God for this day right now. Some people got anxious. Some people got greedy. Some people might have been afraid. Some people thought, maybe I'm a little clever and I can beat the system. But God had something very important to teach them here. Because, and that's, this is the way we're supposed to live as well. God is saying, I want you to live your life trusting me one day at a time, just this day. If we start worrying about tomorrow, then you're going to worry your whole life. God is saying, I really will take care of you, but you're going to have to trust me to do it one day at a time this day. Now, Jesus was deeply influenced by this teaching. 
Because remember the essential prayer that Jesus taught when his disciples said, teach us how to pray? He said, this is, this, is not, this is not what you should pray, but this is how you should pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay. He taught this. This is the manna principle. God, meet the needs that I have this day. I don't ask for guarantees for tomorrow. I don't ask for answers to questions that I'm not being asked yet. I don't ask for the ability to cross a bridge that I haven't reached yet. God, I will trust you for this day, my daily bread today. By the way, the materialist could never pray that prayer. He'd have to say, give us our daily cake. But when I wake up tomorrow morning, like manna, your mercies are new every day. I was thinking about all the scriptures that I have to talk about. You know, every man should take up his cross daily and follow me. Blessed be the Lord our God who daily bears our burdens. You know, don't give us this day our annual bread. Give us our daily bread. You know, I used to be a youth director for many years, and I'd be working with junior high kids, and I just I, I got to this understanding uh, after being in youth ministry for many years where, you know, you sit, you go to camp, and you say to a kid, would you give Jesus the rest of your life? Well, think about a seventh grader. You know. So what I started saying is, do you think you could give Jesus the next 24 hours? Would you commit yourself to giving him the next 24 hours? Because that's how the Christian life is lived, one day at a time. God's provision one day at a time, your commitment one day at a time. And I give him this day. And so, God, I'm going to make my life an adventure in trusting you just one day at a time. Just this day. You know, it's been humbling for me to think about this principle because I do what the Israelites do. I worry and I grumble. And here's what hum, it's humbling about it, because usually when I do those things, you'd think that I would worry and grumble about things that really mattered. <laughs> but usually it's about my own little agenda. I worry about my things, about some project of mine and how it's going to turn out, or how somebody's thinking about me, or what the future's going to look like. And usually it's because I'm carrying a burden that's just a foolish burden anyway. And so I get preoccupied with me. But I bet I'm not the only one who does that. Does anybody else here worry besides me? You know. So here's our challenge. It's your challenge and mine for this week. It's to learn to live according to the manna principle. And you'll be tempted this week sometimes to worry about your future, or worry about money, or worry about your body, or worry about your marital status, or worry about your job, or worry about your kids, or worry about some meeting that's coming up, and you think, I just have to have this, and I'm so anxious about it. So instead, when those moments come, when any of those thoughts or feelings come up, why don't you just turn to God and say, God, just give me manna for today, just this day. Give me enough wisdom. Give me enough patience. Give me enough courage. Give me enough love to handle this day. And as best I can, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I know you'll be there with me to help face tomorrow. So, I, I, I want to collect a little more today, but God says, take what you need for today, because I'll be there to provide for tomorrow as well. By the way, I think this is a great principle about Bible study and, and quiet time. You know, uh, I think God gives us what we need for today. That's the manna principle. You know, and so some people say, well, I'll read like 10 chapters a day, and then I won't have to read for about five days. Well, that's going to turn to worms. You know, it's eat what you need for today. 
I hope you understand the extent to which joy and aliveness that God offers us in His kingdom are dependent upon people learning to live by this simple principle, the principle of the manna, one day at a time. And it takes a while to learn it because worry has a hold of many of us. But the secret is every time that worry alarm goes off in your mind, just go back to God and say, okay, God, manna for today. In fact, I want to encourage you, I even challenge you to maybe write that word manna. Put it in your Bible if you open your Bible every day or put it on a mirror or put it in your car. Some place where you see it. And whenever you see it, you know, just remember, one day, today, I'm giving my life today. I'm living by God's faithfulness to me today. And that's what God is trying to teach His children in the wilderness school. But they're slow learners. So now we come to Exodus 17 because the people are thirsty again. You think by now they'd have some faith. You know, at least we should wait on God or at least talk to Him about it. But in Exodus 17.3, look what it says. The people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us, our, to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And the key phrase there in their complaint is found in verse 7. It's this question. It's at the end of verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is unbelievable to me. I mean, after all God has done, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance from Pharaoh, the destruction of the Egyptian army, the giving of manna, the giving of water, is the Lord really among us? Once more, God is patient. And once more, He provides and He leads them to Mount Sinai. And a number of chapters in Exodus, as you know, are spent at Mount Sinai. They spend a whole year there. Now, turn over to Exodus 32. This is where we kind of left off last week. Moses is up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. All the people have to do is wait. That's all they have to do. They're not hungry because they've got manna. They're not thirsty because they've got water. They've just got to wait. They've got to have enough faith to wait. Look at 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, and I, I like that language, it's kind of distancing themselves from Moses. You know, where is, where is, what's his name? Oh yeah, Moses. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. But I think the key phrase there is, make us gods who will go before us. You see, they don't want to wait. They're more interested in their own timing. They don't understand that God has some good reasons for them to be rooted there at the base of of Mount Sinai. They just want to get out of the desert and get to the milk and honey place. Are we there yet? And Moses is on the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God and he's making a covenant with God. And simultaneously, while this is happening, the people are, you know, the people of the covenant. They're down below worshiping an idol and they're engaging in some kinds of sexual practices that are part of the worst kind of pagan worship that they had come out of in Egypt. And this was God's whole point, is He's trying to lead them out, the human race, out of this kind of pagan worship and understanding that there is just one true God. And so Moses comes down from the mountain and he's livid. And the judgment of God is poured out on this idolatry, on this immorality, You've already read about it this last week, and it's very severe. And the people who reject and defy Him are killed rather than to allow those people to infect and destroy the whole community, which they would have done. And so God in Exodus 33, 
in a sense, says to Moses, listen, I can't take this anymore. You go to the promised land, but I will not go with you. This kind of rebellion and sin will end up in destruction of the whole community, and I don't want that. And then the prayer of one man changes things, as it so happens that it does often in the Old Testament. And Moses says to God, come with us. Look at 33, Exodus 33:15. This is a wonderful request. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, Moses says, you know, God, even though you're offering to send us to the promised land, and that's flowing with milk and honey, and give us security, and give us peace, and give us affluence, you've given us the Ten Commandments for moral guidance, I would rather live in the desert with you than with abundance and affluence and security and protection without you. Several years ago, when I was a chaplain of the Minnesota Vikings, there was a guy who played for the Minnesota Vikings by the name of Carl Kosalki. I might have shared this with you one time. Carl was on his way to training camp in Mankato. He was riding on his motorcycle, and he went to pass an 18-wheeler, was hit head-on by a truck, paralyzed, and he's now in a wheelchair. We were at a conference with about 500 high school kids for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and Carl wheeled himself out onto the stage. We lowered the microphone as he shared his story and how he had come to know Christ in the midst of this accident. And he closed his statement by saying, Guys and girls, I would rather be in this wheelchair and know Jesus Christ than to not be in this wheelchair and not know Him. And that's exactly what Moses is saying. God, we could have all those other things, but if we didn't have you, I'd rather be in the desert with you. And so, I don't know if you could say that. God says, okay, I'll go with you, Moses. I will go with my people. But they're slow learners. Now we're over to Numbers chapter 11. Because this whole story of the wanderings now comes into to the book of Numbers. And if you get to Numbers 11, we're at verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and they said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So they're back on the food kick again. They're complaining about the menu. And by now, it's starting to get to Moses. So look at verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance of their tents. And then the Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. And now he kind of gets a little offensive with the Lord. He goes on the offense. He asks the Lord, verse 11, Why have you brought this trouble on our servant, on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised an oath, as an oath to, to, to their ancestors? Verse 13, Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let, my fa- do not let me face my own ruin. By the way, I would think that's a pretty dangerous prayer to send up. You know, kill me now. You know. Now, God is still merciful with these little whiners. But this time, there's a little judgment that's mixed in with mercy. And then look at Numbers 11:18. This is God speaking now. God says, Tell the people, consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. 
The Lord heard when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. And now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. And you will not eat it just for one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. This sounds like my mother. Uh, <laughs> because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you have wailed before Him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? And God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'll give you what you asked for. I'll give you exactly what you asked for. And so, again, I think there's a real important spiritual lesson here. Sometimes it turns out that what we ask for is not the best thing for us to have. and Or that we need. And they would have had the opportunity to discover that when they asked for something, that it didn't really solve the problem and make them content like they thought it would. And they would have this opportunity to learn what the real problem was, and it was diagnosed in verse 20, which we just read, um, where uh, he says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. Well, things start going downhill for the wilderness school. I don't know if you've ever noticed how when people are together for a real long time in close quarters, even with good families, they start to get on each other's nerves after a while. You know, Could you imagine going on a family vacation that lasted 40 years? I'm sure you get on somebody's nerves. Well, this brings us to the real crossroads of the wilderness school. And now we're in Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm, going to give, I'm giving to the Israelites. For e- from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders, so that all the Lord's commands, Moses sent them out from the... Oh, I'm sorry, so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. And... Um, All of them were leaders of the Israelites. So now, they're real close to the promised land. They're close to being able to go over. The twelve spies, they're gone for 40 days. They come back and they filed this report. Verse 27 of chapter 13. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. In other words, it's a land of abundance. Here is its fruit, they said. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Basically, they're saying this is a real dangerous place with some real strong opposition. These people will probably overwhelm us, and so the people get really discouraged about this. Now, there's two spies that we've heard both in the children's sermon and on the video by the name of Joshua and Caleb. Verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, and he said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the people in the wilderness school don't believe this. They don't believe that God's protection will be good enough for them one day at a time in this new land. Look at verse 32 and the last part of verse 32, because I think it's a a very uh, important image here. The people said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. These are giants, by the way. Now, here's the next sentence that's really important. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. In other words, compared to them, compared to their strength, we could never do this. We're like insects. You know, we, we, uh, we just are not able to do it. And I think they still had a slave mentality because they've never recovered from the fact that they were nothing. As far back as they could remember, 
They were somebody else's slave. No dreams. No power. And so they were never willing to trust God for this great adventure one day at a time. And so God says, okay, you don't have to go. You get your wish. You can stay right here in the desert. You don't have to go back to Egypt and be slaves. But I, I won't make you go into the promised land. And uh, by the way, I think it's pretty clear here. If they had decided to go, it would have been a disaster. Because see, obviously, if you don't think you can win, <laughs> you're not going to win. You know. So God says, don't go. The next generation will be able to see themselves as something more than grasshoppers. And so I'll send them, but you must stay here. Okay, so God has given them this wish that, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, here's the command. Now you're going to stay. Now look at verse 39. Now again, I want you, these people are getting exactly what they asked for. They don't want to go. God says, okay, you can't go. You must stay. Verse 39. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. This is what they asked for. Now they're mourning about it. Early the next morning, they went up to the, to, toward the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, He will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless... In their presumption, they went up towards the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the, covenant, uh, uh, the Lord's Covenant moved from camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and attacked them and beat them all the way down to Hormah. These guys are just like little kids. When God says go, they say, we don't want to go and you can't make us go. God says, okay, stay. And they say, we don't want to stay. You can't make us stay. So they disobey God and they get whacked out by the enemy. He says in verse 20 there that God forgives them and He stays with them and He keeps watch over them and He keeps the manna supply going. But they never know what might have been. The adventure of what could have been to enter in the promised land under God's guidance, they never experience. And I point this out because I think there may be some of you in this room this morning who God is calling you on an adventure. God's asking you to do something, to step out. Maybe it's involvement in, in an activity, a ministry. Maybe it's to lead a small group. Maybe it's to do something in your family. Maybe it's to do something in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a financial adventure that God is calling you to, to do. And, and you're just this close. But something inside of you says, you know, I look in the mirror and I feel like a grasshopper. I'm not adequate. I'm not competent. I'm not good enough. Well, of course you're not. But God is with you. And the question isn't whether you're adequate or competent or, or strong enough. The question is, are you willing to trust God one day at a time? And I think it's such a sad thing that there was this whole generation who would never go on an adventure with God because when they looked in the mirror, they said we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Okay, one final episode in the wilderness school and then we're done for the day. Numbers 20, verse 2. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron, and they quarreled with Moses, and they said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead um, before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? 
It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Do you think this is getting a little repetitive at this point? You know. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And then the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. And you will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Verse 9, So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. And he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. And Moses, this seems very severe for God to do, never allows Moses to get into the promised land. Now, why does God treat Moses that way? I'm going to tell you what I think. This is not original to me, but this is what I think is going on here. The key is in verse 10, when Moses turns to the people and he says, Listen, you rebels, must we, referring to Aaron and himself, must we, not God, Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then he dramatically strikes the rock instead of speaking to it like God had asked him to. And the implication is that he, Moses and his brother Aaron, are the miracle workers and that they're doing this in their own power. I want you to think about this. His whole life has been to take the people, his task has been to take the people who were used to thinking that their leader was a god. Who was that? Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was a god. He claimed to be, and trying to teach them that there's only one sovereign God, only one ruler of the universe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's the whole thing, taking these people who have been worshiping many gods. In fact, that's what I think happened with the golden calf. That was the only way they knew how to worship God, because that's the only experience they had had in worshiping God. You know. And uh, can you imagine by now... Moses must have seemed like a divine figure to some of these people. He was the one up on Mount Sinai. He's the one who talked to God. He's the one when he came down whose face was radiant. And there is, I think, a very real danger that he would attain a kind of godlike status and that people would become so dependent on Moses that they would, or that it would retard or, or destroy the growth of the next generation of people. Some of you are aware of this, some of you aren't. But one of the reasons why Nate and I do the teaching back and forth here is that I don't want this congregation to become dependent on one person or to build a congregation on one personality. I want us to have a plurality of leadership, and that's why we have elders here too. So it's not Bill's church. It's God's church that meets here at Water's Edge. And so if we build a ministry around one personality, that's dangerous. And this is exactly what I think is happening with Moses here. And then he gets a little cocky in his leadership, and he starts thinking it's him who's doing it. And then God tells him to speak the rock, and he strikes it as if to show off. And, and that's one of the things that, that you know, I'm really asking God to do for my life, is to keep me humble 
and to have that accountability with our elders here so that we're not building a church on a personality, but it's God. This is His church. And everything that happens here is because of Him. You know, Developmentally, it's not a good thing to build any kind of structure or uh, ministry around one person. People need to be sure to put their ultimate trust in only one person, and that's God alone. So when they go into the promised land, this next generation, they're going to learn what it's like to relate to God. Okay, for now, today, we're going to leave the people of Israel right here in the desert. I just want to close by asking you, how's your trip going? In fact, some of you may be in the wilderness right now. And God has things that He wants to teach you while you're there. And I just want to tell you this morning, remember the manna. Could you imagine being a weather forecaster in Israel? would have been a very easy job. You know what the forecast is for today? Manna. Tomorrow morning, 100% chance of manna. 365 days a year, manna. I'll give you the forecast for tomorrow in your life. When you wake up tomorrow, God will be with you. God will watch you. God knows you. God will care for you. God will give you what you need. And I think you have a chance to go to wilderness school tomorrow with Him. Just remember the manna and just do life with God one day at a time. And that's the lesson of the wilderness. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes I feel like there's so many things I... I want to share about all that's going on in these pages and just have to pick and choose. But the picking and choosing today is just this, that we want to trust You for today, for what we need for today. And I would just ask on behalf of these folks who are bowing right now, whatever it is that they need for today, that You would meet that need, that they would be assured because they look back in the past and they see Your hand working in their life in the past, that they can trust You for today. And know that tomorrow, as the Bible says, will take care of itself. So, again today, we want to give you this next 24 hours. And we thank you for all that you provided for us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.